Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Mustafa Babak, the Executive Director of the Afghan American Foundation. We talk about Babak's formative childhood in Afghanistan, when conflict forced his family to flee to Pakistan, and his return to Kabul to help rebuild his country after the American-led invasion in 2001. Babak shares how the pursuit of further education led him to college in California, adjusting to a different culture and finding love, and how he has now dedicated his life to supporting other Afghan immigrants seeking refuge and opportunity here after America's withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. When you grow up in in violence and conflict, I think maturity comes to you very quickly because you're dealing with situations that not a lot of people deal with on a daily basis. You, You become mature and take responsibility very early on. Born in Afghanistan in the mid-80s, Mustafa Babak now serves as the executive director of the Afghan American Foundation, a national advocacy organization committed to advancing the voices of the Afghan American diaspora. Prior to moving to the US, Mustafa worked as a public relations executive advising the Afghan government and international partners on key development issues, including counter-narcotics, civic education, and local governance. Mustafa holds a BA from the University of the Pacific and an Executive Master of Global Public Administration received jointly from New York University and the University College London. He lives in Omaha with his wife and family. Mustafa Babak, welcome to Lives. Thank you, Stuart. It's great to be here. So I'm excited to cover a a great span of experience and work some of it really, really profoundly meaningful, and uh, some of it also traumatic too, right. both your personal experience and the experience of many uh, people across across the world. But I think to get into that conversation, we need to start at the beginning, which is with you and your early childhood. So would you mind sharing just a little bit about what your family context was and what your childhood was like? Yeah, thank you, Stuart. Um, so I was, as you as you mentioned uh, just uh, earlier, I was born in the mid '80s uh, in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, uh, into a family, uh, a middle class family. My father, uh, a medical doctor; my mom, a teacher. And uh, it was it was an interesting time in the history of Afghanistan, which obviously has relationship with the United States as well. It was the midst of Soviet invasion. Um, obviously, as a as a child, it was very difficult for us to comprehend many of the things happening uh, with all its sophistication. But uh, uh, I have very vivid memories of uh, evacuation drills when the rockets were being fired, um, uh, hiding uh, from bullets from rockets, and it was I think for a, for for many Afghans it was a survival mode. But at the same time, it was. Uh, trying to counter a Soviet invasion in the country um, that many, many people uh, did not welcome. So I grew up, grew up in that kind of an environment. Um, uh, fast forward to 1992 when the Soviets were uh, defeated in 89, a civil war ensued. Uh, and uh, things uh, got so 
difficult uh, for many Afghans, for millions of Afghans that, like many others, my family decided that we should move and immigrate to Pakistan, which was close to Afghanistan, that shares language and culture. So I grew up in Pakistan for about 10 years. How much of your childhood do you look back on and think was stolen? Or how much do you look back on and just think it, it was just a different childhood in Afghanistan? And it's only in adulthood that you look back and, and see that it was perhaps a childhood that, that wasn't maybe idyllic or as you would have planned it for yourself. Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty. But I think when I was growing up, even before going to Pakistan, it was interesting how, as a, as a child who was born in conflict and violence, you still try to find fun and play in the midst of chaos. Just to give you an example, we used to live in these Russian-built apartment blocks, and we were on the top floor, the fifth floor. And I remember, as they were called mujahideen at, at the time, they, were, they would take positions on the top floor, on the roof of the top floor, and trying to sort of hit their targets wherever they were heading. But then uh, as they were firing their machine guns, the cartridges were dropping in our balcony. And to this day, I think that sound of cartridges dropping on a cement balcony is still in my ears. But then my my brother and I, it's, it sounds really odd, but my brother and I, we would wait for the guy to leave and then we would go to the balcony and try to find an unused bullet. And it was extremely dangerous, but we we didn't have any other means of fun as, as children. So we would take the bullet. It was however dangerous it was. And then we would take the top part out and then burn the gunpowder because it would burn red. So that was just one, ways, one way of uh, for us to find fun in the midst of not just chaos, but violence in danger and risk. And uh, I think now that I look at, like, uh, look, uh, look back uh, to that time, like, how did we, how did we think that this was fun? But then if you don't, if you're out of outlets as a four or five-year-old, six-year-old, you just find ways of having fun or even, even the evacuation drills because my, my mom and dad, they had everything ready in the corner of the apartment. It was a small apartment complex. And uh, every time we would hear these sounds of rockets being fired, because I, I remember vividly, it would start with like a big explosion sound, and then it would, it would and then the, the sound would follow, and then another explosion. So as soon as the first explosion sound my parents would hear, then say, okay, time to run to the basement fifth floor. So even that running and going to the basement with other kids in the basement, that was fun. But not now. A, a lot that I think we missed as children. You described your parents, your father as a medical doctor and your mother as a teacher. And I know I'm looking at this or categorizing this from Western terms, but those seem like middle class professions. I don't know what their economic structure or hierarchy uh, was like at that time in Afghanistan. How, how would you describe the sort of social circumstances of your family's context? Yeah, I mean, uh, in, in the American context, so doctors in Afghanistan were not highly paid. Uh, my dad was a civil servant working in a medical hospital. We were He wasn't earning a ton of money. He had a side clinic on the side because he, we needed an, an additional source of income. 
Um, so he would leave home at around 7 in the morning and come back probably around 8.30, 9 p.m. And my mom, being a teacher, she also wasn't earning much. So we were sort of lo- lower to middle class family. Uh, but I think the the Soviet invasion and then the civil war that ensued also had other economic and social challenges. Um, so, for example, there was a shortage of flour and bread. Uh, and I remember waking up with my father, probably there were days around 3 a.m. to stand in line outside a bakery shop and wait for one or two loaf of bread that we could get um, from the bakery shop, uh, or there was no electricity, uh, water w- was 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 not there, so we would have to travel maybe like a mile with buckets as children and bring water and bring it up fifth floor. Um, so I think economically we were we were we were better than many other people, yes. But I think it was it was not a lot of income where you could live a like a very happy or comfortable life. Were you aware at that time? And obviously, we're building to this point where your family makes a decision to leave Afghanistan and um, flee to Pakistan. But were you aware as a child that there were those tensions or pressures brewing around you? I mean, I I think now that I have children, I understand that children's actually, we, there's a lot of time we underestimate how aware children can be. Thinking about that time, I knew that my parents were struggling with with the situation and, and sort of being in survival mode. We didn't comprehend every aspect of it, but, I, but we could feel that they were concerned about keeping us alive. And they were constantly trying to find ways in making a decision of what would be best for us as a family. So I, I could feel those tensions brewing at home and also with our extended family members. What was that inflection point that made your family decide that now was the time to go? My parents being both civil servants, they they thought leaving would be a disservice to the country. Uh, both of them being in very important fields, a doctor and a teacher, um, they they thought they could actually just hold and things would get better. Uh, but I think when the civil war, I, I think, just brought up a whole different level of violence and chaos. And my uncles, two of our uncles, actually three of them, they had left. They made a decision about a year and a half ago, I think around 19, early 1990, uh, to leave to, to Peshawar. Uh, but I think uh, uh, there were several rockets hit our apartment complex. And my uncle sent several letters saying that I think I would blame myself if I weren't to convince you to leave. And you would blame yourself for not keeping your children alive. And it was that time. I remember it was August of 1992 uh, when the Mujahideen started coming, um, descending into Kabul city. And it was early morning around 4, 4, 4.30 in the morning where my pa- our parents said, okay, it's time to pack and, and go to Pakistan. I can't imagine that that decision for them was easy. I also can't imagine that the actual journey itself was a simple one. What what was that journey like? Yeah, I, uh, for us, we said, okay, wh- whatever decision parents make, you gotta obey and follow your your child. 
but I think there were moments where um, I think a, a, a couple of days before my uncle actually traveled all the way to Ka- to Kabul to take us with him. And he and my dad had intense conversations about like leaving and everything else. Uh, so we knew something was going on and we would be leaving. So it was very difficult for me to lose friends because they would still around in the same apartment complex. We used to play outside. Uh, but I remember that, that that morning, I don't know the day, it was vividly August uh 1992, we had to walk a great distance by foot because uh, the, the streets were just empty. Um, and um, there's this road that leads towards the border to, uh, to, to Jalalabad, which is a bordering uh, town city to, to Peshawar, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. And I remember on both sides of the streets, there was just bullets and burned tanks and burned containers where people were put in to, to be tortured and then killed uh so we walked for quite a great distance probably i think a day by foot and then eventually we were able to find buses uh then make our way to peshawar afghanistan and pakistan feel as if they're very very connected because they seem to be mentioned so often in the same news stories but they're completely different countries with completely different histories and cultures and attitudes and um you know legacies and so on and so forth and so how was that transition for you as a child living in Afghanistan and then finding yourself living as a child in Pakistan? Yeah, I, I, both countries are extremely different with very different histories. But I think there are some commonalities, especially where we immigrated to Peshawar. The border between northwest Pakistan and eastern Afghanistan have for a very, very long time, people who shared the same language and they shared the same culture. So many things were different, yes, a completely different country, a very different educational system, but I think the language was the main common, only in Peshawar though, which is now called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. But everything else was completely new to us. What would happen to school? Where would we go? My, my father being a doctor, how would he find a job? Same with my mother, the schooling for us and our siblings. It was all uncertainties that we had to deal with. Uh, that actually reminds me of many immigrants who came to the U.S. in the past two years, is that you're just dealing, America is even more difficult because they have, there's no, nothing in common in terms of culture and language and many other things. So it was, it was a difficult journey to understand where we were and what the future would hold for us. But in many ways, we thought we were not home. It wasn't home. Uh, we were away from our neighborhood, from our country, from our people. I was also, I think I was seven years old, seven, eight, eight, eight years old. So there's a lot that we couldn't comprehend as well, but we knew that this was a home. How did you handle practically, but also psychologically, the dislocation, the instability that perhaps accompanied the fact of you now living in a, in, in a different country? Yeah, it, it, it definitely took a, a while, but I think what really helped was that we already had several family relatives already established there uh, who were basically guiding us in terms of what to do, the ins and outs of a new life, uh, a new city. Um, My uncles, my cousins were already there. We knew them. I played with my cousins. So I think that was a a not not comfortable, but I think it made it easier 
to transition and we soon went to a public school which also immigrated from Afghanistan to Peshawar. And it was a French high school uh, that was supported by the French government in Afghanistan for years. So they also moved to Peshawar. So we went to that uh, school when we immigrated to to uh, Pakistan, but everything was different. Like the games that we used to play at home, they were not there. Eventually, I got interested in, into cricket because cricket was very common in Pakistan. Um, so I started learning cricket and, and new hobbies and, and new interests, uh, basically. But I, I could see that it was, the struggle was more burdensome on my parents, obviously. Um, back in Kabul, uh, uh, it even though they were dealing with difficulties of violence, but it wasn't very obvious. But in Pakistan, they were also dealing with uncertainty for themselves. So we could see that. Did it ever reach a point where you felt like this area was home, that you could see a life in that part of Pakistan? Never. It it, it never, even though we spoke the same language, um, the Pakistani people, especially the People in Peshawar were very welcoming. Obviously, there were a lot of challenges with, I think, with the government, with police uh, harassing immigrants and things like that. But I think at least people in our neighborhood in Peshawar were very welcoming and accommodating, but it never felt home. There were times we were called immigrants, not even Afghan, who called, oh, look at the immigrants. Uh, they're back again. Uh, things like that were very condescending in, in many ways. Uh, but it never felt home. And for some reason, whatever it was, my parents or our educational system, there was a longing as a child that when would I go back home? I think uh, when you grow up in, in violence and conflict, I think maturity comes to you very quickly, very rapidly, because you're dealing with situations that not a lot of people feel, uh, deal with on a daily basis. So you become mature and take responsibility very early on. I'm the oldest son of the family, the child, but the oldest son, and usually the oldest son bears more responsibility. But even though it, this may be common with other cultures, but for us, it came on very early on. When I was 16, I started working in a like a match factory or a bread factory because I felt that I needed to take responsibility and help my family. I worked in a carpet weaving factory uh, before I graduated from high school. Um, so that maturity came uh, very, very early, but that maturity also told me that I got to go back home one day. And why not Afghanistan be like Pakistan? Peace, development, education. So that was longing. So you did return to Afghanistan. Uh, what were the circumstances behind that? And, and what did you return to? After the civil war, obviously, Taliban came in and controlled the government and the country, and a lot of violence ensued after that as well. People's basic rights were taken. There's a lot of destruction that came as a result of that as well. Uh, but I think uh, the 9-11 was a, was a very critical moment in our life as immigrants, but also as Afghan immigrants, especially as a, as a child who always wanted to go back and return home. I remember we shared a, a small house with my aunt's family, and I always loved to sit in front of CNN because I love to learn English, especially the American accent. Uh, so I would sit in front of CNN for hours on any given day. So my uncle 
said, hey, Mustafa, there's something going on and you should come and see it. It was the coverage of the 9-11 attacks. And he looked at me and he said, I think I can tell you that the world will not be the same after this. And I think you're witnessing, at least from a, a TV screen, that critical moment. And then obviously the U.S. invaded, came to Afghanistan to uproot the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And we saw some new Afghan politician come into scene at that time. It was Hamid Karzai, who then became the interim president and then president for two terms. And my father said, I think it's time to go back home. And there wasn't any better news for us as children or as teenagers at that time that, okay, now it's time to go back. So we uh, returned back to Kabul in October or November of 2001, right, right after the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan. So leaping forward just a little bit, in 2011, you came to America to study, and, and we'll talk about that in a second. But that leaves a decade there where you were based in Afghanistan. What, what were you doing with your life at that point? I was ready to pull my sleeves and be part of rebuilding the country because that was something that I yearned as a, as a child and then a teenager. So I started working in Afghanistan, mostly in media. I traveled with journalists as fixers in the beginning, and then I helped set up radio stations across the country, especially in journals and faculties where students had just opened up to the free media, institution building, journalism training, and things like that. Uh, and then fast forward, I, I became an, a strategic communications uh, executive. I worked with the U.S. Embassy, the British Embassy, the U.N., the World Bank, USAID on communicating very vital information to the Afghan public from counter-narcotics to police training and then everything in between. And I enjoyed every single bit of it in that decade. Uh, that's why I never went to college. How did you feel about being a contributor to the rebuilding of what you've frequently in our conversation called a home. How, how did you feel about um, that contribution you were making in terms of your own identity as an Afghan? Exhilarating. Uh, it was, I think this was a sense among so many other peers, uh, people who were 18, 19, returning after 10, 12 years of immigration, uh, back to their home, there was a new future. There was a, a light they could see. Uh, so you had this bustling culture of a new beginning across the country. And it was just amazing to be part of it. Uh, other people who were my age, uh, the ones who I knew from before and the ones that I just met in the industry uh, or as part of rebuilding Afghanistan, it was very satisfying because now we were rebuilding our country. I think that's why I think uh, for a majority of people, especially in the first decade after uh, 2001, there was so much hope. Afghans could uh, go and study. Afghan women and girls, millions of them could go to school across the country, clinics, doctors, uh, media, entertainment, uh, it was just so welcomed by people from across the country, and it was just amazing to be part of that and have a hand in rebuilding the country and see it move to a direction that we loved it. I'm just caught up in the excitement of youth and this feeling that 
there are no borders, no horizons to what's possible. Did, did life feel somewhat limitless? Did you feel like you could really breathe reality into your dreams or your ideals? Limitless. Uh, there was just not enough time to pursue what we wanted to do. Um, my, my parents were a little frustrated with me in the early years uh, especially coming from an educated family, my my father specifically wanted me as the oldest son to go and pursue medical college because he was a medical doctor. And I never felt like I needed to go and study because there was no time to study. I, I was just in the thick of being part of a, a, a historical moment of rebuilding the country. So why would I go to college? Because I was just working there. I didn't want to come back home from the office. I wanted to stay there. I, want, I was traveling extensively across the country. This was the first time I had that opportunity. Out of 34 provinces, I traveled to 24, 25. So majority of the country, and there were places that I'd never seen. I heard about in books and from family, but I'd never been there. So I could do that uh, for the first time. Nothing better than that. Obviously, we've given the surprise away that you do go and get a college degree. So um, what were the circumstances that made you decide that that was the time that you should go um, and get a degree, and in fact that you would do so in America? This was never in the plan, but I think uh, as years passed on, I became uh, more mature and more experienced in the field that I was involved with, and I think I developed a keen interest into the philosophy of international development and post-conflict development. So I think over the years, especially after 2008, 2000, 2008's beginning, I started becoming a little bit more sort of developing a sophisticated understanding of policy and development. And there were instances where I, I felt that I wasn't, my effectiveness had reached a limit. I had also become a little bit more uh critical in terms of how development was done, especially with my extensive travel and looking across the country and looking how development was done. They were great examples, but they was also really bad examples. And for a moment, uh, I think, especially in 2008, I felt that, like, you know, like, you reached a point in your career where you think you're not going up up in terms of either your effectiveness or you're not learning something new. And I think beginning in 2008 was when I started that maybe that's what's happening. So in 2010, I, uh, so I had a privilege to work for a phenomenal woman called Sakina Yakubi, who founded Afghan Institute of Learning back in the 1990s. And she was running underground schools for children in Afghanistan when the Taliban were in control of the government. And in 2001, I was teaching English in many of her uh, English language centers. So I, I later on, obviously, I moved on and worked in many other places. And in 2000, and early 2010, she reached out and said, hey, there's a scholarship opportunity uh, from a university that I went and studied in the 1970s called University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. Do you want to pursue? Even then, although I, I had sort of mixed feelings in terms of what my role is now after 10 years, I'm like, there's no harm in pursuing. I guess I could, maybe it would be a test of whether I would get it or not. And so I did all the tests and evaluation and everything else. And um, mid-2010, I got the news that I got the scholarship. 
It was a fully funded scholarship, small private university. And I'm like, oh, this is real. It's not a joke. Um, and so I went back home and I'm like, I, I got the scholarship. And my parents said, this is probably the best thing that have happened to you. You should go and pursue it. But I, I, there was a mixed feeling because I loved my job. And my friends were saying that people go to study to have what you have. But you want to leave what you have to go and study. How does that work? Uh, you shouldn't leave. Uh, and the company partners that I was working for, obviously, there was a little of bias there. But uh, they didn't want me to leave. Um, so it was, it was a very difficult decision. So I think it came to a moment where we, in our culture, we say, if you have a difficult time deciding, you take your hat off and put it in front of you and talk with your hat and say, what should I do? And I think I had that moment. And I said, maybe it's time for me for a change and go and study. So yeah, I've decided to leave. And it was December 27, 2010. I landed in San Francisco airport. And I went straight to Stockton, California to pursue my undergrad at the age of 27. Was there a sense of culture shock for you? I'm imagining it was both uh, to borrow your language, exhilarating, but also perhaps um, nerve-wracking. What was that experience like for you? Uh, very mixed. Uh, there was uh, an immense, uh, I think, culture shock. Uh, a very nuanced level because it was my first time in America. I think before that, I had exposure to Western culture. I traveled to Europe extensively a couple of times, uh, but I'd never been to America before. But also America, to someone who has never been to America, is very big, not geographically per se alone, but just in terms of the power that it exerts, uh, the brand itself, America. I used to work for an American nonprofit in Afghanistan called Equal Access, and I had many, many colleagues who were from the U.S., and um, like I remember this colleague specifically at Equal Access who showed me the pictures of the Golden Gate Bridge. And said, so, you know, Mustafa, one day you will go and be able to see the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, so all of those things, but also I had watched many Hollywood movies uh, that represented America from a distance to me. Um, so all of that was exciting. It was great. It was wonderful. But then... The culture shock was also extremely heavy uh, because of two things. I, I, again, not being an American person, and Hollywood is not an accurate representation of America. But we didn't have any other alternatives. It was just the movies and news. That's it. So it was, it was a whole new exposure to a whole new version of America in person. Um, but also, uh, I think the college experience was a huge culture shock. Um, it's it's not rare, but it's also not very common for an international student at the age of 27 to come and live in a dorm with undergrad students who were about 9 to 10 years younger than him. So that was a whole new set of culture shocks for me, living in a dorm with, with, with them and seeing the difference in my upbringing, their upbringing, the culture, the, the belief systems, the, what they valued, what they talked on a daily basis rather than what I did when I was at the, in their age. So all of them were, were definitely part of a big culture shock. Are there any examples of some of those experiences that you could share that demonstrate either the culture shock or perhaps just the fact that you're a more mature uh, student in your late 20s contrasted with your 
colleagues, uh, your fellow students who are in their late teens? Well, I think coming and becoming a college student in an American school at the age of 27 for the first time is in itself a culture shock. But even when I was 17, 18, I would be still shocked being among students that I had nothing to share with. There's no right or wrong here, but it's just something very unknown and very different and unexplored. So I remember they placed me to your, to your typical freshman dorm uh, where I shared a room with another student. Uh, but then they were like, I, I remember in the first week, um, I would hear screaming and loud noises. Um, and I would be concerned. I'm like, what's happening? Is someone, is there a fight downstairs? Is someone being attacked? Uh, so I would, I would leave my room and come downstairs to see what's happening. And I would just find kids having fun, um, sometimes drunk. Um, and that would be almost almost on a daily basis, not just weekends. And I mean, later on I understood because this was the first time these students were away from home, finding a very different stage, themselves in a very different stage of their life, very independent, not being at home. And obviously that would be part of it, but I, I couldn't understand and I'm like, this is not my place. So I think after a couple of weeks I went to the housing department and I, I think I, they also saw me for the first time. They didn't realize how older I was. And I'm like, is there any chance you could move me somewhere else? Because I don't, I don't think I can live in this dorm. And I think they quick, they were very quick to realize this, and they moved me to a more senior level. I think they moved me to uh, dentistry student uh, dormitories where I had my own room. I am a sucker for a love story. And so I don't want to miss the fact, though, that it was during your college years that you met your now wife. So there's a love story to be shared there too. So I, I, um, we can come back to that in a minute and and explore how it is that you've landed in the Midwest and and what it is that holds you here. But I do want to segue just a little bit then. So you had this college experience and you're navigating through um, being a, a student, graduating through. Um, you know, the culture shock of a, of a different country, a different way of living your life because now you're a full-time student. And it was towards, um, I think it was around 2018, you at this point are one of many Afghans who are living outside of the country. And you undertook a comprehensive study of the experience of this Afghan diaspora. And I think that yielded all sorts of insights which are still regularly uh, resorted to by academics and, and other researchers. Could you just share a little bit more about what it was that drew you to that study? And what were some of the highlights that, that you discerned about the Afghan diaspora? A, a very critical question to uh, my present journey. Um, I think being in Northern California, which has been uh, an epicenter for Afghan diaspora, or Afghan Americans for a very long time, um, I was exposed to a lot of uh, Afghans who settled in Northern California back in nineteen late 1960s, early 1970s, and then later on. So I had a keen interest to understanding the Afghan diaspora, but also as a community. I think later on in my life in the U.S., I realized that I won't be going back home. 
So I think that realization that came that America will become home made me even more interested to understand uh, the Afghan diaspora, who they are, what they're up to, the challenges, the opportunities. So uh, rightly so, in 2018, I, I pursued a comprehensive mapping of the Afghan diaspora in the U.S. Um, I, I traveled uh, across seven states, several cities, and interviewed over 100 Afghans, a diverse set of Afghans who came early on in 1960s and 70s, but also later on after 2010. And I think it painted a very, very comprehensive picture of Afghans are very diverse. They have been here for a very long time, uh, but not as as long as many other diaspora like Pakistanis or Vietnamese or, or Indians. Uh, that there was a lot of opportunity uh, to, for engagement, um, both domestically within each other as a community to develop and become productive members of, uh, of their home in, in America, but also in terms of advocacy, foreign policy. Obviously, Afghanistan had been for a very long time a core part of the American foreign policy, but for a very long time, the voices of Afghan Americans uh, did not match that level of importance um, in the U.S. So uh, I want to also wanted to understand how that could become sort of a, 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 a catalyst where Afghan Americans could engage on policy issues, both domestically but also especially towards Afghanistan, and be able to inform policymaking on Afghanistan. Um, that was some of the insights of, of the study, which also became a trigger for establishing uh, Afghan American Foundation as a national organization that could uh, strive for elevating the voices of the diaspora, advancing their interest, and engaging on 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 advocacy, policy, community building, and education. So, you are learning more about this Afghan diaspora, some of the diversity, but also the commonality and the shared stories. But also, perhaps it sounds like some sense of voicelessness around bigger picture issues between America, the rest of the world, and particularly the Afghans' place in that. Of course, this is happening at the same time as this agreement between the then Trump administration and the, and the Taliban for a withdrawal and winding down of troop presence, which then in, I think, early 2021, President Biden announced a withdrawal plan and the timeline for that, which resulted with a, a really tragic and mismanaged collapse of the country with the Taliban, I think, entering Kabul again in August of 2021. What was happening with the foundation and you leading up to the withdrawal and, and then post-withdrawal? Yeah, critical question uh, in the sense that we Obviously, the developments were happening really fast, especially after 2020, when we founded Afghan American Foundation with with other friends who had many of these necessities in common and the vision in common. We felt that there needed to be engagement uh, with, especially State Department, in in trying to build some sort of a dialogue or engagement that. Obviously, there was a lot of fatigue building up among American public and the U.S.'s engagement in Afghanistan. So that, I think that was very obvious. But we also wanted to have at least raise concerns that a haphazard withdrawal would be extremely catastrophic for the Afghan people, 
but also for America. Uh, over the past 20 years, from 2001 up to 2021, Afghans and Americans built bonds uh, in many, many different ways. And we, we wanted to see some responsible in withdrawal from, from Afghanistan. That didn't happen. Uh, Afghan American Foundation was actually formed before the crisis in August of 2021. We did, we had many engagements with State Department and with the White House. Obviously, that didn't go very well. But then come August 2021, uh, the crisis happened. And as a, as a new organization, we had to completely shift gears and try to find ways of dealing with that crisis of, I think it was very, obviously very traumatizing for many, many, many of us, all Afghans in general, but also many Americans who served in Afghanistan, either as a civilian but or also as a veteran. Um, because uh, there was a lot of blood and treasure invested in Afghanistan for 20-plus years, and then losing that almost in a matter of days, if not hours. So it was it was difficult to comprehend, to deal with, but at the same time a crisis that needed some sort of a response. My parents were stuck in Afghanistan. They were there as U.S. citizens to visit family, so uh, that was on top of it. Um, but we, we shifted gears and, and tried to engage at the federal but also state and local level to mobilize the community to respond to this, to mobilize um, communities of supporters to make sure that the welcoming of over 95,000 Afghans were humane and dignified, and that many other immigrants who didn't have support when they came to the U.S., that the new ones didn't have to go through that. So Afghan American Foundation, along with many other organizations, played a critical role to ensure that the voices of Afghan Americans were central in uh, the welcoming of, of Afghans in the US. I want to explore two things you just said. One, one was your interaction with the federal authorities, and the other is your own personal experiences around this situation. So first of all, what is the foundation doing now to help support the members of this growing Afghan diaspora? Yeah, there, there are several areas of focus for the foundation. Um, advocacy is uh, a big part of it, um, uh, and especially on resettlement and long-term integration of Afghans in the United States, the evacuated Afghans in the United States. Um, many of uh, these Afghans uh, who served very closely together with the U.S. and Afghanistan uh, were suddenly f found themselves evacuated in planes and brought to the U.S., a uh, new home. Everything is new, uh, unknown, uncertain. But I think the, the biggest uncertainty for them was that, so uh, this is a little bit of a technical jargon, immigration jargon that I've uh, now learned be being in, in this field, uh, majority of Afghans who uh, were uh, evacuated to the U.S., they came through a program called the Humanitarian Parole. And what the program does is that it's a legal means of allowing non-Americans to have a legal means of staying in the United States for a limited period of time, and that's for a duration of two years. So majority of, almost all of Afghans who came to the United States, they came through this parole program and they were resettled here. Over the past two years, many Afghans who were eligible for the special immigrant visa program, 
some of them have been able to adjust status. And then you, through that SIV adjustment and eligibility, able to pursue long-term immigration uh, opportunities in the U.S. Uh, while many are still pending, that's been a route that they have been uh, pursuing. Others who did not um, uh, qualify for the special immigrant visa, they have managed to find uh, limited legal resources to be able to file for asylum and then seek long-term immigration benefits through the asylum program. But tens of thousands of other Afghans haven't been because it's a very complex asylum system, immigration system in the U.S., um, many of them don't have the legal support needed to navigate through those complexities. Many actually left their homes in a moment's notice so they don't have the documentation um, to to provide a full of res- uh, uh, asylum process. So they still remain in parole. So uh, we have worked with many of our coalition partners, including Evacuate Allies and other Afghan-American organizations to advocate, uh, do a lot of administrative advocacy with Department of Homeland Security, USCIS, that that two years actually coming to an end this August, early August. For many Afghans, they start expiring. Their illegal status start expiring, which means that as soon as your legal status expires, you won't be able to work in the U.S., you won't be able to actually legally live in the United States. Uh, now, all of them have resettled here. They've become members of our community, our neighbors, our co-workers. And losing that status is a huge uncertainty and, and burden that they carry. And so I will, that's why it was important to do that advocacy with our partners to make sure that there was uh, at least an extension or not extension, but actually at least a re-parole process that allowed them to apply and then have another two years of buying time until there was a long-term permanent solution for this uh, quagmire. That's one specific area. But we also do a lot of community building, community outreach, uh, community mobilization, uh, working with uh, other institutions like uh, private part, uh, public-private uh, partners in the sector, like Tent Refugees for International, uh, for for uh, Tent Partnership for Refugees, working with U.S. employers to hire Afghans and provide cultural competency and resources for them to be able to transition through that process, um, and uh, with the Board of Justice, with employment rights uh, organizations to make sure that uh, Afghans feel at home. Uh, with veteran groups, obviously, uh, uh, as well, but also just uh, as part of our main mission of working with Afghan diaspora, a diverse set of Afghan diaspora in the U.S. and uh, towards a better future. So in, in talking about how life can seem so uncertain for the Afghan diaspora here, what is some legislative uh, solution that perhaps you, through your foundation, are advocating for that might give some sense of stability for people. Yes, and I mean, when we talk about uncertainty, uh, it's not fair for so many Afghans who served and assisted the American mission in Afghanistan and served with Americans shoulder to shoulder to relive that reparole every two years and have that uncertainty come across their mind. So I think the most comprehensive, because reparole is a short-term solution to a problem that requires a long-term fix. And long-term fix for us is rightly so a legislative act. Um, and that's through the Afghan Adjustment Act, a bill that uh, that that 
gives that long-term stability for so many Afghans who have been evacuated by our own country in the U.S. and have been actually welcomed here by open arms by so many in America. That bill is the bill that actually provides a pathway for Afghans to seek permanent residency. And the, we have done a lot of advocacy around it. There's so many others who are advocating for that bill to, to pass. It's actually in Congress as we speak. And I think Congress... Uh, has this opportunity to act that this is the least America could do to for his for its allies is to give them a sense of permanency in their new home, and I hope that Congress seizes that opportunity. So I touched earlier on the fact that there's a love story, and I love a good love story. So you married. How did you make your way to the Midwest, and how have you adjusted to being? Um, both an immigrant, but somebody who works so closely with a country that throughout our conversation, you've talked about this yearning of building a community, building a country, being at home. How have you navigated establishing a life here, but at the same time working for the betterment of a life elsewhere? Yeah, um, now, obviously, I live in Omaha. Um, I'm, uh, I've had a very long term relationship or my family has had a long-term relationship with Omaha, Nebraska. Um, some of my relatives um, settled here um, uh, 40 years ago, early on in the midst of the Soviet invasion in Afghanistan. And um, I have been commuting to Omaha for about a decade now because of family. My parent, my sisters moved here one about 11 years ago, another one about 15 years ago. Uh, and then my parents uh, moved here with my youngest brother about eight years ago, obviously because of family being here. But uh, I was always traveling, uh, being in other parts of the U.S., and never thought, especially with the line of work that I was always involved I never thought I'll be in Omaha. Um, I met my wife uh, in college in, uh, when I was studying and uh, it was um, a long story short. It was someone that I, I connected very well with while I was struggling with the cultural shock and finding myself uh, in America. And she was the connection of feeling home uh, at home in the US. So we got married and we traveled, but I think with COVID, uh, with remote work, uh, and with realization that you, we have to reprioritize what matters to us in life, family was one of the first that came to our mind, and we wanted to be close to my folks here in Omaha. Um, so we moved about two and a half years ago to Omaha, and uh, it's been great to be part of this community. Uh, we knew very little about Omaha despite coming here on a regular basis, but now it's become a, a home, and I've developed a great sense of respect and friendship with Omahans. Um, that many people actually don't realize uh, uh, a community full of hospitality and respect and mm, polite people and just, I think, a stronger sense of community that I've seen in other parts of the U.S. that I've lived. What do you feel that you have, as a, an immigrant here, an integral part of our community, but also a global citizen, what do you think you've gained and perhaps what do you perhaps grieve that you no longer have? So I'll start with the latter. I think the the grief of not returning home, because I came here with the intention of going back home, that grief has not disappeared. 
especially how things have turned out for Afghanistan, uh, definitely hasn't helped. So I think that grief is is still there. Um, but I think it's also I think there's also a positive side. I think over the past 12 years of my time in the U.S., I've been able to develop very deep connections with Americans. Uh, I think a deep appreciation of developing a community, but also I think having a very open mind of connecting with Americans, especially those who have who have never been able to be exposed to uh, to Afghanistan the history of Afghanistan, the bond that Afghans have with Americans that actually is not realized uh, to where it should be uh, and be able to do me- make those meaningful engagements. I think storytelling has been a big part of it. I've been able to, and fortunate to actually have those opportunities. Actually, it brings me an immense sense of satisfaction, especially engaging with Americans who do not have a positive outlook to Afghanistan because I see that as an opportunity to actually engage because there would be things that I would learn about them and there would be things that they will learn about me and I've made that uh, across my time in the US with my in-laws with the community everywhere I've been but also sp- especially with Omaha like I I had my parents friends who were Americans over to our house over some Afghan food and some ch- chat and talk and storytelling and then they would send a thank you note in the mail saying that thank you so much for hosting us uh, in your house those are extremely meaningful and I cherish them My guest today has been Mustafa Babak Executive Director of the Afghan American Foundation Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Stuart. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.